Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. They say you can't judge a book by its cover. At the Folio Society, we don't agree. Our beautiful books are all hardback and come with a slipcase, illustrations, and gorgeous covers. At the Folio Society, we've something for everyone. From Pride and Prejudice to Dune, Charles Darwin to A Game of Thrones. If you love books, you'll love Folio, the perfect gift. Order now at foliosociety.com and get $10 off when you use the promo code PODCAST. Conditions apply. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 623. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. I tell you what, I'm going to jump straight into what's coming into today's show. First off, we have Dave Kavanagh with his story, The Face of Heaven, which is narrated by Eric Luke. That's coming up first, but now, answers on the postcard. I can't remember when as well. Andy Thomaswick. Andy used to do little sections for the show, for the Hugo Reviews. And Andy got in touch with us a few weeks ago and says, Stay tuned, three children later... (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm back. I'm back. Do you fancy a little segment? And I just, when Andy said, I jumped straight at the chance because I love them. He did like, you know, a, a five, ten minute little review of a, a book. So, yes, we have Andy Thomaswick back on the show. That is all coming to the show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So, like I say, the main fiction is Dave Kavanaugh's. The Face of Heaven. Dave Kavanagh's short fiction has appeared in Nature, Andromeda, Spaceways and Story Shop. His fantasy novel, The Age of Omicron, was released by Fiction Vortex Press in 2018. And you can find him on Twitter and at DaveKavanagh.com. Now, like I said, this story is narrated by Eric Luke. Eric is the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake. The comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman and wrote and directed Not Quite Human films for Disney's TV. His current project, Interface, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills, is available free on iTunes and at Quillhammer. So, the Starship Sova is... Very proud to present The Face of Heaven by Dave Cavanaugh. My hands are shaking. It had been many years since any involuntary tremor had passed through Martin's body, and the sensation brought back a flood of memories in greens and blues and pale oranges. Fear, 
tangible, instinctual human fear was not something he had experienced since his youth, and he could not help but get a little excited as it coursed through him, feverish and sensual, tying his stomach in knots. The tech in his brain fought back, striving to catch the neural patterns in its nets before they would reach his conscious mind, trying to repress the primeval emotion and replace it with something more practical. Martin ignored the warnings. He let the fear come, flowing over him in waves. He inhaled the horror of the moment. He allowed his hands to shake, his teeth to chatter. He had been traveling for two weeks, having traded the breakneck speed of the virtual council debates for the swift, silent terror of spaceflight. His gaze wandered from his quaking hands to the starscape stretched out on every side. It was funny, knowing how fast the engine was propelling his little craft through the solar system, but seeing only the tranquil statuary of the constellations all around. Then the city finally came into view, appearing first as just another soft star ahead, but soon growing to a deep splotch of red against the black. He could make out the spheroid shape with its blinking lights, its spindly towers stabbed out to every side, and its geometric parks all haloed with dozens of small blue satellites, algae garden moons. Martin had spent much of his childhood in a city like this one, a little town of a couple of million people in a former asteroid. Its body mined and tunneled and expanded until it swelled like an iron and ice balloon. But that was so long ago, and everything had changed, especially Martin. His skin tingled as the craft decelerated upon reaching the city. The engine hummed rhythmically. The distorted gravity of his engine struggled against the pull of the city's engine, and for a moment Martin felt as though he might be flung off and crashed down into the towers below. Now I'm falling. Catch me! But the computer systems compensated, and he relaxed. A crane spun and extended two parallel bars toward the craft, holding out an oval platform. Martin took a deep breath, climbed from his craft, and stepped onto the platform. The crane contracted, pulling in the platform and drawing Martin to the surface of the asteroid. He scanned the cityscape as it rose up to meet him. This was a pleasant enough place to live, he thought, grassy and quiet, the architecture simple and unassuming. Gray pillars held up gentle archways. Glass domes glittered atop mounds of cubic cabins. Even the starscrapers were graceful and devoid of the heavy-handed arrogance of so many modern cities. They were slender turrets rising up from the orchard of glass and steel. He saw green parks with glacier-blue skating ponds. He saw schools. He saw amphitheaters. Everything but a cemetery. A woman stood waiting for him at the base of the crane. She wore a gray suit to match the detached expression on her face. Deep wrinkles traced her eyes. Even at a glance, Martin recognized the straight back and total focus of someone who could dedicate decades to a specific task. Martin, she said, half question, half statement, and extended a hand. He stepped down from the platform and shook her hand. Are you her physician, then? His voice sounded strange, dry and old. Had he used it at all on the journey? I am, the woman answered. Your daughter is a very atypical person. Martin found himself grinning. That she is, doctor, 
He let his gaze fall to the ground, paving stones, dark gray, like the woman's suit. And how much time? She shrugged square shoulders. Hours. So, shall we? Turning, the doctor led him away from the crane and across an expanse of brilliantly green grass. She spoke to him as they walked, but Martin found it hard to concentrate on the monotone voice. Sorry, what's that? he asked, tilting an ear toward her. I said, she tells me you're very active on the council. Must be exciting these days. So many critical votes coming up. Hmm. He was staring around at the park. A family had laid out a blanket nearby and was having a picnic lunch. The parents sat cross-legged, looking frazzled as they assembled five unique sandwiches, while their three children played on a crescent-shaped frozen pond in the center of the park. The children laughed and cursed as they spun and collided on the ice, tumbling down again and again, so that the seats of their pants were dark with water stains. He wondered how those children saw their world, wondered if, as he had done as a boy and his daughter after him, they sometimes tricked the tech in their brains into letting the pain feel real. Did their tailbones ache? Did the jabs and punches they exchanged send jolts of distress surging through their nerves? Probably not. They probably felt nothing. Nothing but the persistent reassurance of everlasting safety. Martin tried to take in more of the city, to enjoy the scenery, to distract his racing mind with the fresh sights and the doctor's small talk about the council. But with each step the endeavor proved more hopeless. His senses were engaged in a futile battle with his memories for control of his attention. It was not long before the park and city skyline beyond began to melt away, blurring into a flickering daydream, a millennium in the making. Broken toys and foul breaths and sweet smiles. Mathematics and masturbation. Nightmares and daymares. Zero gravity, microgravity, asteroid gravity, Enceladus gravity. His craft's gravity. Sweat and heat and awkward laughs and release. A swelling belly and a long sigh. And... That is where he stopped the images forcing them back into the recesses of buzzing neurons, punctuating the mental victory with a flat smack on the leg with an open palm. They were in an elevator now, descending rapidly into the heart of the asteroid. He had not remembered getting on. Could you please tell me about the illness? Martin heard himself ask. Of course. It is a deviation from her DNA stabilizer. A very uncommon malfunction happens with one out of every 20 billion genomes, and it's mutating at an exponential pace. Think of it as a very hungry herd of zombies, feasting and infecting as they stampede through her body. Do you know the term zombie? It's an old fairy tale monster. I'm sure Lilith has mentioned them before, he said, lips tightening in the hint of a smile. I did have my computers working to counteract the illness, of course, but when she requested, well, I suppose you know how stubborn she can be. Martin's smile widened, though his teeth ground noisily with the action, sending a shock through his jaw. Ow. Oh. She's in here, the doctor said, as they reached their destination. Once again, Martin had not remembered getting there. The spacecraft, the elevator, the current doorway, 
from one spot to another without passing in between, like electrons on a macro scale, like quantum tunneling played out in some ridiculous melodrama. None of it felt real. The now, the now, the now, he kept telling himself, battling the brain tech's attempt to numb his terror. Please stay here, Martin. Watch. Experience. Please. Please and thank you. This last mental request was unnecessary. For the instant he stepped into the room, his mind unclouded. The fuzz in his ears, the empty hole in his heart, the iron weight of worry in his brain, all vanished. The room was small, white, unfurnished but for the simple bed against the back wall. The air was thick with the smell of death, an alien thing to Martin's senses. Oh, my, he said. The words leaked out in an exhausted sigh. Lilith was draped across the center of the bed, a blanket tucked snugly around her frail form. The curls of cinnamon hair that Martin had, so long ago, struggled to untangle when she had been playing in the rain, were all gone, replaced by patches of white stubble. Her eyebrows and lashes were gone, her lips were gray and shriveled, white pustules dotted her face and neck. Martin wanted to speak her name, but his mouth was too dry. He swallowed. Hey, was what he finally said. Her eyes opened slowly. The whites of the eyes were bloodshot, but the corneas were as blue and alive as he had ever remembered, as blue as the algae moons, and flecked with swirls of silver. Twin galaxies. Hey, Dad. Lilith smiled and a boil at the edge of her lips cracked open, spilling drops of white pus over her chin. Martin leaned and wiped them away with the back of his sleeve. I'm pretty gross, she told him. A tear fell from Martin's cheek onto her blanket. You sure are. Nasty. Hmm. Lilith sighed, letting her eyes close again. Honesty. Like water. So refreshing. Martin inhaled through his nostrils and exhaled through his mouth. He blinked the rest of the tears from his eyes. Lilith, your physician has informed me that you are refusing further treatment. She kept her eyes closed. And? And? What do you think, and? Why, Lil? Why do you want to die? Lilith shook her head, though it looked like it took some effort. I don't, liar want to die, Dad. It's not about that. He groaned. My stars, girl. Your damn riddles always drove me mad. Okay, then. Why, why don't you want to live? Is that the right question? I have lived. For nearly five hundred years. And I lived well. Traveled. Read. Taught. Fell in love. And out of love. And in love again. I've experienced one beautiful moment after the next. I've adored living. That's not it either. Not really. What then? What then? Damn you. She turned her head on the pillow, then opened her eyes and stared, unblinking, into his face. I asked you once, when I was a little girl. Little girl. The words broke something in Martin, and he was lost once again wandering through the halls and closets and basements of the brain, lost and trying desperately to fight back through the fog, but
but it was like swimming through zero gravity in the dark. Her next words entered his ears, but in his mind's eye, it was not the old woman on the hospital bed who spoke them. Why don't people want to die, Daddy? He blinked. Lily was four. Well, he said, considering, I suppose that the only thing scarier than existing forever is not existing forever. She cocked her head. She looked angry then, angry and conflicted and much older than her four years. Much older. So, so old. Her emaciated lips grinned again. You there, Dad? You look far away and upset. I'm not upset, and I'm not afraid. Guess that's the answer. I'm just not scared. With an effort, he relaxed the tension in his eyes and forehead. It won't matter soon. The council will make the vote any day now. We are unified in the decision. The right to die will be repealed. The great waste of mortality shall be no more. I know that, Dad, but... They can fix you, Lil, if it's your body you want. They can freeze you until they find the cure. You don't have to be in pain. Please, think about what you're doing. Just let them fix you. I am not broken. You're dying. She tried to shrug, but the gesture barely moved her bony shoulders. I don't think you can understand, she said. Am I that stupid? In some ways, yeah. Martin wiped at his eyes, but there were no more tears. So, you're what? A martyr without a cause? Dying for the sake of dying? Don't be silly. He leaned in, wondering how that same lively voice of hers, all honey and sunlight, could come from such a ghastly form. Lilith, you will be the last human to ever die. I doubt that, she said, not bothering to hide her amusement. Even with all your fail-safe nets, accidents will happen. Saboteurs and radicals will always exist, and opinions will change. Eventually troubled souls will want to find peace, and they'll learn that sometimes nothing we produce or build or grow can give them that. And even if you solve all the little problems, Everything dies eventually. Particles use up their energy. Stars burn out. Galaxies twirl themselves into oblivion. The universe will burn out like a candle. Poof! Then we'll make our own universe. Lilith's eyelids drooped. She seemed to sink into the mattress with each wheezing breath. Maybe. Just shut up, Martin. Stop pissing her off. You lost. You always lose debates with her. Ignoring the complaints of the doctor in the doorway, Martin stretched himself out in the bed next to his daughter. Carefully curling around her thin body, he slid his right arm under her pillow, scooped her head against his chest, lay his left hand on her own over the blanket. She shivered and smiled. He automatically brought his left hand up to run through her hair, but the stubble scratched his palm. Your students, Martin blurted out, a new thought crashing over him. All those little ones you teach at the school, they must be terrified. They must be so confused to have their teacher like this. 
Lilith grunted. Oh, Dad, no. You forget what it's like to be a kid. Everybody does. My students aren't terrified. If anything, they're curious, excited even. To them, I am becoming something thrilling, fantastical. I am magic. Yes, hide behind your pretty words, why don't you? And you're wrong. You're, I don't know, lost in the past. We're not like the humans of old, and neither are your students. And neither are you. We're not chimps anymore. We've moved beyond. In some ways. And in other ways, we've just moved laterally. His body stiffened on the bed. And now we're back to arguing. Yeah. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this, he said. I've been ten AUs away from you for how long this time? Fifteen years, something like that. But I just always feel so close, like you're in the next room. Like I can just open a door and hug you, talk to you, be with you. His eyes burned, itched, tried and failed to start weeping again. Oh, Lilith. What am I going to do without you? She nuzzled her cheek against his chest. I don't know. Maybe do something with me instead. Cut me out in little stars that I will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with... will be... will... Oh! Martin sat up. Lilith's body stiffened, jerked, seized. She sucked air in rapid gasps. What's wrong? he asked. The doctor hurried to her side, motioning for Martin to get out of the way. Her organs are failing. Martin jumped up from the bed, his gaze snapping back and forth between the two women. I hurt. Lilith grunted and hot tears streamed down both her cheeks. What can I do? Martin asked, hugging his arms around his torso. Lilith, can you slow your breathing? The doctor said in her half-statement, half-questioned tone, ignoring Martin. Lilith did not answer. Do something, Martin demanded of the doctor. Help her! We are doing what we can, said the doctor, given your daughter's instructions. But look at her! Lilith's chest rose and fell rapidly. Her eyelids peeled back. Her eyes were wild. She stared at her father. It hurts. It hurts, Dad. He nodded. I know, baby. Martin's instincts rewound five hundred years. He remembered suddenly how to check for a fever with the back of a hand, how to hold back curls and keep them from getting vomit in them, how to look at his sick child and know exactly what she needed. Get out, doctor. The doctor turned, forehead creased. I beg your pardon? Please leave us. For a while. The doctor straightened up and walked from the room. Martin sat on the edge of the bed. He took his daughter's hand. Her breathing slowed a little. I'm going to tell you your favorite story, Lil. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> okay. So I've been alive for 1,800 years. And in all that time, nothing has come close to the experience of seeing you for the first time. The moment your mother pushed you out, so soft and small and noisy as hell, all bruised and wrinkled like rotten fruit, time stopped. I mean it. It literally stopped like a broken clock. 
like the epicenter of a black hole. And I looked at you. And in that moment, that eternity squished into a blink moment, I suddenly understood everything. I did. I saw it all, and it scared me. It made me feel small. And it made me feel wonderful. And I knew I would love you forever. The stench of the room seemed to fade. Martin could remember the smell of Lilith's infant head, the taste of her hair against his lips. Indescribable. And when time came back, most everything went back to being the same as before. But you were there now. So I wasn't the same. I was never the same. And you were perfection. The only perfection in the universe. And I got to hold you. He lay a hand against her cheek. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Electrons. Silence. He held her. Okay, she whispered. Now, go. What? She shook, eyes wide with sudden pain, skeletal fingers squeezing the blanket. Go, Dad, she moaned. I don't want you. Not for this. Baby, no, Lilith, I want to stay with you. Go! And then he was in the elevator. Again, he had no memory of getting there. Lilith beside me. Lilith far away. The doctor was with him. Is she dead? asked the woman in her monotone voice. Martin said nothing. The doctor nodded. Soon then. Something thrilling. Something fantastical. Magic. What does that mean? Back on the asteroid surface, the doctor led Martin back through the park the way they'd come, talking while they went. Your daughter left strict instructions that her body is not to be cloned or rejuvenated. After the council repeals the right to die, we can freeze her anyway, but I suspect it will be too late. The connections in her brain will have deteriorated too much for any meaningful revival. Martin nodded feebly. He felt weak-kneed and exhausted, lost and old. His hands were shaking again. Do you think it would be okay to bury her? In the garden, in the schoolyard, perhaps. It would be quite unusual. The whole thing's unusual, Doctor. <laughs> or none of it is. I don't know right now. I can't think. The doctor shook her head disapprovingly and muttered that she would have to talk it over with her colleagues. And then, after a stiff handshake, Martin was left alone at the foot of the crane. He stepped onto the oval platform and felt himself rising up toward the stars and waiting craft. He turned to stare down at the park below. The remnants of the family picnic from earlier lay scattered across the blanket. He could not see where the parents had gone, but the children were still at the crescent pond. Two were sitting by the grass at the ice's edge, watching the third, a girl, tugging at a piece of jagged, crystalline ice. When it broke free, the girl lifted the trophy above her head. She threw the ice. Martin watched as the blue-white shape arched through the air. The moment its corner struck the frozen surface of the pond, the whole thing shattered, 
into a thousand glistening pieces. He climbed into the craft. As the engine purred to life, his gaze turned upward to the blue garden moons and the expanse of scattered stars. He breathed deep. He closed his eyes. I got to hold you. To hold perfection. Wow. And there you go. David, David Ladd, thank you so much. And Eric, honestly, thank you indeed. Wow, you can just get them out. Thank you. So like I say, Andy Thomas got in touch. And and I, honestly, it's... it's well, she's had three kids, do you know what I mean? So, Andy, well, they're going there, lad. Everything's working in that department, I can see. So, yeah, so Andy's, like I say, ages ago, used to kind of drop these, I'm not sure if it was once a month, Andy, once a couple of months, you know, and there were great little insights into, a, into the kind of the Hugo Awards and the novels around them. So, Andy, take it away. Hi, everyone. I'm sorry I've been gone for so long. Raising young children took away a lot of my quiet alone time, and now that they're old enough to sleep in large increments, I'm back to having time to do these reviews. I've been making the best of a hectic household and have continued reading the award winners even though I haven't been recording these. Hopefully some of my love for the genre has rubbed off on my kids throughout this process. For the book this month, I'm going to cheat a little bit and go with the winner from 2016, as the winner from 2017 and 2018 are its sequels and written by the same amazing author. Let's get the Broken Earth trilogy started with a review of the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin. The world of the Broken Earth trilogy is highly original. It is based on the Stillness, a single continent which periodically undergoes a catastrophic event, the fifth season of the title. The people of the Stillness react to that catastrophic event by developing a highly regimented and hierarchical society. People are shunted into particular caste-based jobs that are determined by their physical and mental characteristics. One of the most notable castes is that of the Orogenes, or people who can control geophysical forces. They are immensely feared by other members of society, in part because they can accidentally kill bystanders while using their powers, which suck energy, i.e. heat, from the surrounding environment to channel into the command of rocks and lava. After a suitably eye-catching beginning, the story of the fifth season follows three Orogenes. Essun is a fully grown Orogene, living in secret in a small town, attempting to raise her son and daughter, both of whom are also Orogenes, without giving away their powers, even to her own husband. Demaya is a young Orogene, who is adopted into the Fulcrum and taken under the wing of the powerful guardian Shafa. Cyanite is a Fulcrum Orogene, who is forcibly paired up with Alabaster, the most powerful living Orogene, to attempt to pass on their powerful genes to a child. The plot follows plenty of twists and turns and is an excellent vehicle to flesh out the world Jemison has built. I must say that the world building throughout the series is astonishing. Jemison manages to create a unique, believable society that is an interesting mix of magic and sci-fi. This is the first book of all the award winners that I think fits into the science fantasy genre. The extreme apocalyptic scenarios that the world finds itself in are believable, and the reactions of both the characters and society at large often realistic portrayals which isn't particularly flattering to humanity. But that leads into part of what makes this book so great, its look at philosophy. There are a few critiques to level with the story, though. First, one of the stories is told in the second person, so if you don't like being told that you are doing something, don't say I didn't warn you. Also, there are numerous, although brief, scenes of very horrific child abuse. Some reviewers even mention that they actually had to step back from the book because of them, so be forewarned if this is something that bothers you. The way it is described make it very obvious that those scenes are an integral part of the world building, and they aren't gratuitous or overly drawn out. 
However, it points to the dark reality of the stillness that is reflected in the fifth season's philosophy. A big part of the fifth season is a not particularly subtle examination of climate change and discrimination. The stillness is anything but still, and the society that supports it is bent on using the origins as tools to control something that would otherwise destroy them. While there is no immediate analogy in the real world to the power these semi-sorcerers have over their planet's climate, it does elicit the question of whether modern-day humanity would use the same kind of tools to limit the effects of climate change if given the opportunity. The seasons described in the book are times of extreme environmental upheaval, and the work of many communities is to gather the resources necessary to survive through the next season. While not the focus of this book, how a society is adapt to seasons is a case study in how to survive disasters, with little emotion and with a heap of preparedness. The contrast to our own society's short-sightedness on potential climate disasters is striking. Discrimination is another big theme of the book, and the society of the stillness is extraordinarily discriminatory on a number of levels. The general populace, called stills, fear and despise the origins in their community. Many young origins are treated very harshly, hence the aforementioned child abuse scenes, and the ones living in more enlightened towns are passed on to a guardian, who takes responsibility for the origin's actions and uses various techniques to train and control the origins. Additionally, there are a variety of use castes described in the book. The use caste a person is born into determines their role in the world, and largely their outlook in life. These can range from strongbacks, which fit into the brute stereotype, to leadership, which would be something akin to an elite political class. The use of the word caste in this system draws an obvious parallel with the social systems in the recent history of our world. However, the people in the different castes are in fact physically and intellectually different from one another. Not enough to classify them into separate species, but certainly enough to draw attention to the discrepancy in treatment. There is an obvious question about whether the highly structured and communal society is necessary to survive in such a hostile world as a stillness. In either case, Jeminson's story provides an interesting take on a societal structure that is still problematic in many parts of today's world. The fifth season does feel like a different kind of book, and it has earned its place among the greats of both sci-fi and fantasy. If you can get past some of the grittier parts, this book is well worth the time investment and can serve as a touchstone and inspiration for a new hybrid between the two genres. Next time we'll take a look at this book's sequel, The Obelisk Gate, which was the winner for 2017. Again, I'm sorry for my prolonged absence, and I'm looking forward to getting back into the groove. I'm into clapping this day. Yes, thank you very much. Andy, it is a pleasure. Listen, don't leave it so long next time. Eh? If you can, that would be fantastic. There you go. Andy, thank you so much indeed. So that is, I hope you enjoyed that. That's amazing, to be quite honest. Andy, the story by Dave is fantastic. And Eric, thank you so much. But to have Andy on again after so long, it is unreal, to be quite honest. Yes, love it. This made my idea, this. Thank you so much, Andy. Like I say, that's it. I hope you enjoyed it. Do help with Patreon. My God, come on, man. If you can, that would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, a good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Can you reach me? Is my 